Welcome back to another episode of the Unlearning Podcast. My name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and I am your host, your guide, and your biggest cheerleader on your unlearning journey. I'm so grateful to be back here with you, unpacking scripture and looking at it from a healthy lens. If you're new to the show, welcome. I'm a graduate of Claremont School of Theology, a lesbian Christian, and an ex-evangelical. The Unlearning Podcast is all about helping you learn to love Jesus and your neighbor through healthy, life-giving Christian theology. This particular series on the Gospel of Luke is an in-depth look at scripture from the viewpoint of an ex-evangelical, but also from the viewpoint of someone who believes that a healthy, progressive understanding of scripture has so much to offer us even today. And so we spent this series making our way through the gospel according to Luke, walking through the birth of Christ, learning about Mary and John the Baptist, and encountering Jesus in the desert with the devil. Today we're going to talk about Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, his hometown. What does the rejection of Jesus mean to us in the 21st century? And how do we think about this moment in a healthy, life-giving way? So the passage we're going to look at on today's episode is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. If you're driving, just go ahead and listen as I read. And so here we go. Hear now the gospel according to Luke. Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding region. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has anointed me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And Jesus said, But truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. The truth is that there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine all over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many with a skin disease in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except the Naam, the Syrian. When they heard all this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up and drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. End quote. 
Luke chapter 4 is pretty intense. We start with Jesus being tempted by the devil, and then Luke takes us back to Jesus' hometown, where they are so offended by him, so filled with rage, that they drive him out of the town and attempt to throw him down the hill. If you grew up in the church, it is easy to overlook this passage and to think that it doesn't really mean much to the average person. In Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, Jesus didn't heal anyone. In the passage I just read, he didn't heal anyone. He didn't give a sermon on morality. He simply went to his local synagogue, unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, and read a prophecy on the coming Messiah. This particular prophecy, however, is quite compelling. It states that the Messiah would bring good news to the poor and proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free. Now, that is a glorious vision for a Savior, for any Savior. And it is also the ministry and the mission of the coming Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One by Yahweh. And Jesus claimed to be that person that would complete this mission. And instead of praising God for a prophecy fulfilled, they rejected Jesus and, I quote, drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the cliff on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. Thankfully, Jesus escaped. Now, there are a couple of things that many pastors hardly ever say about this passage that I want to bring to your attention. For one, Luke paints a great emphasis on the poor, the oppressed, and those who are held captive by something. Whether literally or figuratively captive, it's not clear. One could be held captive in a jail. A person could be held captive by some addiction or disease. With 21st century psychology, we know that people are held captive by trauma or generational trauma. Regardless of what people are held captive by, Jesus came to liberate them. Notice that Jesus said nothing about sin and about how awful your sin is and how you got to obey God. And if you don't, he dangles you over fire like a spider. No, Jesus proclaimed that he had come to bring the good news to the poor and proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. This gospel that Jesus proclaimed, this mission, this messianic mission, is a gospel of liberation, not a gospel of hellfire and brimstone. This is why liberation theologies are so important. Liberation theologies like black theology or feminist theology or womanist theology or queer theology are theologies of liberation, ways of looking at scripture and at the character of God that supports spiritual and physical freedom from oppressive forces. Many people take Bible verses and apply them weirdly out of context, the most famous of which is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People use that verse as a form of motivation, whether or not they're Christians, to do all sorts of things, to make more money, to win a football game, to conquer an enemy on a video game. It's weird. I don't think there's any other verse more abused than than that one. But no one should be applying that verse to win a football game or to make more money in business. People also take that verse or Proverbs 31 out of context, and they use it as the single greatest measure for biblical womanhood. But that is taking that passage out of context. That's not what the chapter is about. 
Proverbs 31 is a string of Proverbs to help describe to King Solomon the kind of wife he should marry. And we should know that Solomon's mother, who told him these Proverbs, is Bathsheba. And so Proverbs 31 is less of a call to all women and more of a call to single men to look beyond beauty and to find a woman who is mature with an actual spiritual life. Other Bible verses taken out of context are verses about submission and slavery. Many slave owners use these Bible verses to support and uphold chattel slavery, which is absurd. Chattel slavery is from the pit of hell and has no place, no place in any kind of moral society. Now I can go on and on about misused verses. The point is that Jesus didn't misuse this passage from Isaiah. According to Isaiah chapter 61, the Messiah is all about one thing and one thing only, and that is liberation. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 61 and go just a couple verses afterwards so that you can see the context of this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's where Jesus stopped. And I'm going to continue. This is verse two. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up ancient ruins and they shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, this devastation's of many generations. End quote. What a beautiful vision for a savior. As Christians, we're comfortable with understanding the word oppressive as a metaphor in the way that sin can be oppressive. But Isaiah and Jesus use very specific language that deals with the external oppression just as much as it deals with internal oppression. Notice the language about being a prisoner and captive and the call to comfort all who mourn. Why would a whole community of people mourn? And do you hear God's promise to help rebuild ancient ruins and to raise up former devastations? When I read the phrase ancient ruins, I think a lot about generational trauma. I believe that the Christian faith has the power to help stop generational trauma and to foster healing, but it is not the only resource to do that. Therapists, social workers, priests, personal trainers, nutritionists, and 12-step sponsors. These are all essential resources to helping people stop and heal from generational trauma. This is a holistic approach, a holistic approach to healing using all of the resources in our community. When I was in the evangelical church, I was convinced that the only way to stop generational trauma was to conform myself to the model of biblical womanhood. I used to think that if I forced myself to be straight and forced myself to be a homemaker and submit to men and submit to all the authority in my life, that that would somehow control the outcome of my life. 
that that would keep me from experiencing heartbreak, divorce, anxiety, etc. But that's just simply not true. You cannot avoid the ups and downs of life by quote-unquote obeying God. You certainly cannot control God by obeying God. You cannot control other people by obeying God. And following your pastor's plan for marriage can't control anything. You cannot keep unhealthy people from hurting you by appeasing them. The spiritual life is not about obedience or about conformity. It's about freedom, spiritual, emotional, physical freedom. Remember that the truth about the person and work of Christ, about the character of God and the work of God in your life should set you free. The truth should set you free, not enslave you to more of other people's expectations. Sometimes the most necessary form of freedom is healing from freedom from generational trauma. The best way to stop generational harm, the best way to ensure you don't become your parents if you had unhealthy parents, is to become the healthiest person you can possibly be. If you come from a family where the ancient structures are ruined, where there was no resemblance of love and wholeness and safety, life can be really hard. But the journey ahead of you is not impossible. Many people, many people, Christians and not Christians, have stopped and healed from generational trauma before you and have lived long and healthy lives. Healing and wholeness is possible. This truth might be the most profound truth of the gospel, that healing and wholeness is possible. I believe that's true for me, and I believe that's true for everyone, regardless of what you do and do not believe. In order to heal, you have to do the work of separating yourself from a toxic context and to begin to provide safety, compassion, and a healing environment for yourself. You cannot make that someone else's job. You really have to do that yourself. You have to go to therapy and talk to someone you trust who can help you unlearn those toxic thinking patterns. For some of us, this podcast is a way of healing from generational trauma, religious trauma. And for some of us, we have to stop going to church so that we can separate from our past and begin to breathe. Whatever healing requires, please have faith that it can happen. You can correctly apply Paul's verse in Philippians to your life because I promise you, you can do all things, including heal from generational trauma with Christ who strengthens you. Another really interesting thing about this passage in Luke is that Jesus' rejection at Nazareth comes much later in Matthew and Mark. In the Gospel of Matthew, this moment is recorded differently in chapter 21 and in Mark chapter 12. So why did Luke include this moment, this rejection, this hometown rejection so early? Well, Bible scholar Fred B. Craddock explained that Luke sacrificed chronology for another purpose, for the purpose of announcing, and I quote, who Jesus is and what his ministry consists and what his church will be and do and what will be the response to both Jesus and the church, end quote. Perhaps in addition to that, Luke used this event to foreshadow how people will eventually crucify him. I'm not sure, but add this to one of the many wonderful mysteries of scripture. The last thing I want to point out to you is that part of the passage where Jesus said that a prophet is never accepted in their hometown. 
When this moment occurs, it's not at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Although it's placed here in the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke makes sure to note this is not the beginning of his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, his hometown folks were making fun of him, pushing him, ridiculing him, telling him to cure himself and to do the things that they heard him do in Capernaum. Capernaum was largely Gentile, and it was a town without a big Jewish community. And so we can infer from the text that his hometown was upset as he, at his connection, at his healing work with the Gentiles. Instead of telling them point blank that they were wrong, and that the gospel was for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, Jesus used two examples of Jewish prophets healing Gentile people, the widow from Sidon and Naaman from Syria. And so given Jesus' response, we can infer that their rage was in part rooted in Jesus healing Gentiles. Craddock explains it best when he wrote, Jesus did not go elsewhere because he was rejected. He was rejected because he went elsewhere. Sometimes our disdain for other people can be so strong that we reject the work of God in their life. We reject their experience of God's grace and God's care and God's provision. But this is not healthy. Part of healing from the harm that other people have caused is praying for them. If you can forgive someone, pray for them. If you can't forgive them, pray for them. Pray that God would forgive them and care for them and give them everything you long for for yourself. Pray that God would bless your enemies and bless those who have caused you trauma. And pray that God would grant them peace, joy, love, and happiness. Because essentially, that's what was happening here. Jesus was blessing, blessing the enemies of the Jews. And they were so angered by that to the point where they rejected Jesus and tried to kill him. If we are not careful, if we are not careful with our hearts and our attitudes towards those who've caused generational harm or religious trauma, we would, we're going to develop the same heart that these people had one that is hard and cold and ultimately rejects the person and work of Christ. Praying for your enemies is a great first step in healing from trauma. The next step is to get professional psychological help. The evangelical church is very suspicious of secular therapists. You don't need to be. There's no shame in getting help. There should only be celebration when people in our community choose to humble themselves and get the support that they need to heal and rebuild those ancient ruins. Before I end, I want to circle back to this idea of rejecting Jesus. I believe we reject Jesus every time we reject the poor. I believe we reject Jesus every time we reject and condemn social justice movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. I believe we reject Jesus every time we ignore and deny the many ways that people in our family are held captive by toxic relationships. I believe we reject Jesus when we reject the help we need to get better mentally and emotionally, like rejecting the help of a therapist. Whoever you are and wherever you are on your journey of faith, please don't reject the help around you. Don't reject Jesus. Don't reject the help and care and love available to you for your healing, nurturing, and growth. And find time to really dig deep and study a theology of liberation. That might be really helpful to you. 
If you're looking for a good book on a liberation theology to read, I would highly recommend James H. Cohn's book, A Black Theology of Liberation. It's by James H. Cohn, C-O-N-E. And it's the best first book to read when reading about liberation theology. It'll help you think about God, scripture, and the gospel in a whole new healthy way. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. If you're on Instagram or Twitter, I would love to connect with you at Ashley L. Hanks, or you can find me on my website at AshleyLHanks.com. Until next time, my name is Ashley, and you are listening to The Unlearning Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah.